Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our ongoing foundation courses and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Gary Kristen is a 2-4 sacral generator and well-known practitioner of Uranian astrology and its developing form of symmetrical astrology. A professional astrologer since 1969, Gary is the first person in modern times awarded an accredited bachelor's degree in astrology from Livingston College at Rutgers University in 1974. Gary also co-founded and is the current president of Astrolabe, assisting in the development of many astrological software products. He's an encyclopedia of knowledge in the field. In this episode, Gary takes us through a history lesson in the field of astrology, including the beginning of his journey in the 60s and the many individuals who contributed to the process. He shares some background on the Uranian system and the early days of astrological computing. He emphasizes how astrological systems are always the product of the culture in which they were developed and how mutation often comes most clearly through specific individuals, as human design did through Ra Uruhu. He touches on some of the challenges we're faced with today in terms of astrological education and gives us a sense of hope for astrology and humanity in the future. We hope you enjoy it. You're from the East Coast, yeah? That's correct. I was born in New Jersey, hung around New York City until we started astrographic services on Cape Cod. Now, I've been on Cape Cod since 1979, essentially. Growing up in that region, how did astrology find you? (laughs) At the time, I was 17 years old. I was going to the School of Visual Arts in New York City for filmmaking. And I had a teacher who really didn't like having to sit through eight hours of student home movies, essentially. Hmm. It was a, a, a filmmaking class. And he would do anything he could to short circuit the class, you know, and get off. And his name was Judd Yalecut. And this one day he comes in, he goes, Saturn's going into Taurus and I'm an Aries. So I'm going to have a party at one o'clock. We're all leaving at one o'clock. Right. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? I'm a Taurus. He goes, (laughs) oh, for you, two years of work and responsibility and you deserve it. I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? So I started hassling him about it. And the guy really didn't know anything about astrology, but he sent me to the New York Astrology Center, which was down on 6th Street off of 2nd Avenue in New York City. And I went next to the cauldron, if anybody has that deep a memory. But this is 1968. And I get down there, I walk in, I said, what's all this crap about Saturn going into Taurus? And they sold me about $110 worth of books, which in 1968 was a small fortune. (laughs) And I went home and began to get addicted to astrology on a very direct basis. Came back to the center and asked them for a job and began to work at the New York Astrology Center. At that point in time, until the summer, uh, where I took a hiatus from it all, went to Rutgers University, got a degree in astrology, went back to the center at the time was the National Astrological Society. It was run by Barbara Summerfield and Henry Weingarten out of uh, the New York Astrology Center. And I traded them work for classes and tied it up with a guy named uh, Dr. Kenneth Nagus at Rutgers University, uh, where I was going for a student-initiated major in the Foundations of Astrology. As it turned out, it was the first BA awarded since 1837. 
essentially, in astrology. And to this day, there still are no foundational schools in astrology that are accredited. You know, Rutgers is an accredited school. Mm -hmm. So my degree has some meaning. The three people followed me. Jeff Jower got a, uh, a degree in the history of astrology from Amherst about six months later. And two other people, one got a degree from a Catholic school in Colorado in a foundations style bachelors. Because see, a lot of people right now, they're going to Bath Spa and various places over in, in England and whatnot. They're getting masters and PhDs. But a master's and a PhD, you can get anywhere with a sympathetic professor. There is nothing special about studying in England with historians. And, you know, essentially, all of that energy, as far as I am concerned, is squandered because it wasn't put into a bachelor's program that's accredited. Foundations, you know, you get your foundations in something and then you get your master's in what interests you, you know, but that means that these people are their degree in sociology or their degree in psychology. And now they're getting right. a master's in historical astrology. So we pulled it off. We did pull it off. I worked for Henry uh, through 1975, um, and I got my degree from Rutgers, and Bruce Schofield helped out on that. Dr. Nagus helped out. We started the Princeton Astrological Society, and the beginnings of NCGR were happening in Manhattan during that era. And during that time, working for the New York Astrology Center, it gave me a very interesting astrological education. I mean, one of the first people I met was Charles Jane. You know, I had to deal with Dane Rudger, the Gauklans, the Ebertons, mm -hmm. uh, Geyser Mindia, all that stuff, all passed through the doors. So I had an education in astrology that was pretty much across the boards. Mm -hmm. Now, during that time, Henry used to lend me out to his brothers to run around and do delivery services in New York. But I would deliver books to Wisers and Masons and run up to Pelham, New York to hang out with Neil Mickelson and help out with that project. A couple of times I was, you know, I had to go with Mark Pottinger to the New York Public Library and look up time zone changes and stuff because Neil's Astro Computing Services was a very small operation at that point in time. So it was a really interesting era. Now, in the various knots of astrology, you know, going from things like sidereal through various other means, I did wind up with Uranian. Uranian was very strong in New York. Hans Nigemann uh, was a student of Alfred Vitta, who was a proponent of the system. You know, he was strong in the, in the city. I mean, he was a character. But most everybody was practicing some form of Uranianoid astrology or cosmobiology. As a matter of fact, the educational uh, track for a lot of people in Manhattan was to um, study cosmobiology, get a master's in social work, and then go out and practice using astrology and collect insurance money. And this was how people would you know, do a regular psychological practice and stuff like that, integrate astrology directly into it. It was way advanced at that point in time in the 70s. This has all died out since. But that was a method, and it worked very, very well. So myself, you know, I'm hanging around with the Uranian crew, essentially, in, in Manhattan and helping out with NCGR and all that other stuff. My last teacher was a guy named Wayne Booher. 
Now, Wayne was a student of Hans's, and we all worked together, and we picked up the dial franchise, right? Wayne was making dials, right, for the use with the system. The system uses a protractor-type device. And I started making dials because I was working with, with Rob Hand at the time. Rob Hand and I were both stock boys at the New York Astrology Center. You know, Rob came down for one of the first New York conferences in 72 and became really enamored of the whole thing. So, you know, we were hanging around and this and that, and we got the idea for doing astrographic services in the mid-70s, but we didn't really act on it at the time. And uh, we were putting together NCGR and all this other stuff. And so my last teacher was Diwayne Booher, and we didn't know it, but... There's an orthodoxy in the Iranian system and the way they did things in uh, Central Europe. Hans coming over, he emigrated in 1925 to America. He was a direct student of propagator of the system, but he did things his own way. And Hans was an artist. He taught uh, voice for the New York Metropolitan Opera. He was a very good astrologer and a real character. (laughs) He was what we call Hadesian character. But he was a real character, and he was lazy in many respects. But he did a few technical things because of his laziness that revolutionized the way we look at the dials, right? It's very different than the way they do it in Thailand or the way they do it in central Germany or any, anywhere else, even in most of America. We didn't realize it that way. You know, we just thought this was the way you did it, right? And time goes on. Well, around 70, 74, 75, I have a falling out with Henry Weingarten and Barbara over the fact that Rob Hand uh, supposedly visited the new New York Astrology Center after we moved it up to Madison Avenue. They didn't like Rob at that point. You know, we had a big fight and a squabble. And I was unemployed for a short period of time. And then I got a call from a guy named Jack Savitt of Red Rooster Steel Corporation to get a job as a corporate astrologer for a steel company in New York, right? Uh, He had had four other astrologers prior to me, and I was number five of a whole crew since 1959. So I took the job. I knew Jack. I was selling him books all along from the center. And I said, well, why don't you hire Hans? And he said, no, Hans thinks I'm a crook. You know, well, what about Wayne? No, I fired Wayne. So, I, you know, I, saw I, took, <laughs> I, I said to Wayne, should I take the job? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, go work for Jack. You'll make some money. It was a good thing. So for a few years, for a couple of years and through uh, 76 and 77, I was working for the, you know, Red Rooster Steel. And it was a very demanding job. I had to do reports every day, demi-lunar returns, every ingress under the sun. It was I had to write up a lot of reports and stuff like that. It was a pain in the ass. But it was a really interesting job. Meanwhile, Rob and I were working on astrographics. Around the late 78, I was going up to Cape Cod you know, a couple of times a year. And I'd go up there for three or four weeks at a time, and we'd be working on things. Rob had a, one of the earliest interdata machines that was a mini, it was a, it was a microcomputer, but it was pre-CPM, it was pre-S100 bus, but it was one of the earlier machines. We had early disk drives and stuff like that because he was making money from planets in transit. The book had been published and he was getting a pile of cash. He was born and raised in the Cape. So, you know, he was a local, real provincial guy. So we're going up, we're working on projects. We figured that astro computing would be a situation like we didn't want to compete with Neil 
because Neil Astrocomputing Services really invented the whole idea of computing and astrology in the most part. And his service was excellent, you know, and he was really responsive to everybody's needs and stuff like that. So he had a big fight with Jim Lewis over the Astro map. Neil made a very important point. He said, well, Jim, if you had patented it, I wouldn't be able to use it, but you only copyrighted it. So therefore, you can't copyright an idea. Therefore, I could take the idea and run with it. It was a very fertile time where, you know, microcomputers promised to revolutionize astrology. And I spent a lot of the 70s trying to figure out how to make a clock chip so I could make a sidereal clock. You know, it was like, you know, we wanted to get the transiting meridian all the time. It was like, yeah, it's the only way you could do this thing. And nobody wanted to make clock chips that weren't civil time. You know, they didn't want to push it into sidereal time. That was a royal pain. But meanwhile, in the late 70s, after I quit Red Rooster Steel and I was hanging around uh, and, you know, going back and forth to the Cape, we got a contract with American Express for a pendant, right? It was a guy who was making this pendant called the Stardate Pendant. He actually got the name Stardate and trademarked it as well. Wow. You know, this was like just before the revival of, uh, you know, Star Wars and, and all that other jazz. Nobody wanted the name. He got the name. And he basically was just a sequence of astrological glyphs and their signs. And it was, you know, Stardate Pendant. Get your birth chart on your chest. Who knew that he would sell it to American Express? And he contracted with us for a buck and a half for every horoscope. And we had just finished making the program. Rob had just signed off on the first calculator that was a good one. Went to the printer, made a chart, listed everything out. You know, the first one, it was complete. And it took seven minutes from entry to printout mm. for each chart, right? So we were charging a buck and a half. We got 26,000 orders. And Rob called me up. Called me up at Thanksgiving. Gary, you got to get up here. We got to do all these things. You got to do these orders. So I moved to the Cape, November of 1970. That be 1979? No, 1978. We processed those orders and we began to make the software. And what we wanted to do with the software was make tools and tables and stuff that nobody else had. Right. We wanted sidereal ephemerides. We wanted to have canons of eclipses with the charts and the Saros cycles. And we want so we were going to program and do all this stuff. And nobody wanted to buy the stuff, but everybody wanted to buy the software. So we made a program called AG1 to run on the Apple and its equivalent on TRS 80 and as well as on the primitive CPM machines. Quite often, it's, they talk about Matrix being the first software company. But the truth of the matter was that Michael was programming calculators, hmm. right? And he published Matrix magazine. We sent him the first routines. Rob did a good routine on the sun and moon calculations and stuff. And in 1978, Michael's selling it. We called him up and we said, hey, those are our routines. He said, yeah, but they were in my magazine, so therefore I own the copyright. So I said, well, f, f you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we began to sell software. And basically, he was selling software for the Commodore, which was basically a toy machine, mm -hmm. you know, and we were selling it for CPM, which was an industrial-grade machine. And we were hanging around with Neil Mickelson. We were trading routines with him. We did his uh, Mercury routine. He did the Pluto routine. You know, that went back and forth. Matrix hired a guy named Rex Schutte, who was working for Stanford, to do his planetary calculation. 
So he had no in-house knowledge of how to do these things. We got the job right after that to do Jim Maynard's calendars calculations. We hired a guy named John Kahila to work with us. And he was a, a really good sidereal astrologer who was an excellent mathematician. That's where the math people live is in sidereal land. We started off, and in six months, we created a program called Astroscope, which was the first interpretive report on a mini microcomputer, you know, and we were selling it to people and started the, the company. It started basically a rivalry between Astrolabe and Matrix all through the years. Meanwhile, Astrolabe grew. We brought in a guy named Arthur Blackwell, who was really important. Uh, Pat White uh, was Rob's girlfriend at the time, and she became a partner. A guy named Steve Blake, who was a local, came on board. So it was like, we were like trying to build a brain trust. We couldn't figure out how to do it. We decided to go commercial instead of nonprofit for purposes of control. In a nonprofit, you really, really don't have control as far as the state is concerned with the thing. So we started out as Astrographic Services, and by 1985-86, we reincorporated as Astrolabe, Pat White's idea. Pat White was, was an old marketing jingle writer on Madison Avenue before she got into astrology. You know, the show Mad Men, mm -hmm. she was Betty in Mad Men. She was a jingle writer in a man's world. And she said, yeah, that show is absolutely correct. Everybody got drunk at 11 o'clock and you couldn't do anything in the afternoons except sleep on the couch, you know. <laughs> but she was a great jingle writer. So she, you know, she came up with a lot of our phrases and stuff like that and, and things like that. So the company gets born. Uh, meanwhile, Astrolabe is helping out with the running of NCGR and, and everything else. One of the things about Astrolabe is that we've never been good at marketing. Matrix and other competitors, they were excellent at marketing. The only difference was we always did the job right. We had in-house expertise. Everybody else has to go to out-of-house expertise over the years. And plus, we were really cognizant right from day one that Everything we wrote, everything we did would be a template for what would be copied in the future. So the techniques that we kept alive would be the techniques that people would practice as time went forward. Now, in astrology today, where we stand at the moment is an interesting place. Well, one of the things to point out is that the teacher, the originator of your system, right, was a single guy. You've got a vision. Mm -hmm. Now, the kind of system that you're practicing, we call a fusion system, right? So it's an amalgamation of three different basic systems, the chakra system, Yi Ching, and an astrological breakdown, right? And fused together where the chakra system's getting two extra points, you know? <laughs> hey, we evolved, you know, as humans and all that stuff. It's an important thing that it comes from a single person because most of astrology, the pivot points, the turning points have always been through individuals, a single character out there. In the Iranian system, it was Alfred Vita, right, where he brings it forward. We go back to the ancient Greeks, and it's Hermes Trimagestae, you know, this mystical guy who wrote this book that nobody could find anymore, <laughs> right, that kind of stuff. When astrology had its fall, it was Pico della Miranda's letter, a single guy's letter. 
Bruce Schofield and I have arguments and he says, ah, there's a whole bunch of characters and stuff. Because my opinion basically is that science got its chance because of the Reformation, right? And made a deal with the Anglican Church, which wasn't looking too good. Get Think about this for a second. Uh, 1665, right? And William Lilly is putting out his almanacs. And the almanacs, basically, the front page, nobody knew how to read, so they would do it with pictures and stuff, but it was an early printing press. After the Bible, the most popular thing to get printed were astrological almanacs. Before the Bible was printed, before the idea of metal movable type, there was wooden type, and the, it was a proponent, was a guy named Donath, who was trying to make astrological almanacs. Mm. Before Gutenberg comes along, we were at astrological almanacs getting shoved out on everybody. And Lily comes along, and in 1665, he puts in a picture of London on fire. Well, in 1666, London obliged and burnt to the ground. This did not make the Anglican Church look very good. Who's to believe this Protestant Reformated Church, right, it's less than 150 years old, essentially, right? They were running and they were in trouble. You, you realize that something like the Royal Society, the Science Societies of the era, were in deep doo-doo when it came to the church. Guys like Galileo were getting thrown in jail. Copernicus had to wait until he dropped dead before he could publish something that was of heresy. My God, the earth isn't the center of the world. The church had a hard time, and the scientific orthodoxy, my thinking, just stepped in to the breach. And they said, well, we'll take care of this magical thinking for you. And they just branded astrology a priori, person non grata. And not only that, it was science's original sin, because, you know, the scientific method is you have to, you can't condemn something without proof that it doesn't work, as well as proof that it does work. Mm. But hey, science would have never gotten started. And we could say that science is the religion of the modern culture, coming in with the Reformation, with the idea. So there's this idea of individual characters that come along at various times, like Alan Leo comes along and revitalizes astrology, a single character reshaping things. And that's what the teaching of your system is basically has done. I mean, the guy had these visions. It was there's a similar thing in Esalon back in the 60s, right? Between 1962 and 64, where a bunch of people got together and put together a tarot, a tarot card set called the Book of Tea. And it was dictated through the Ouija board. <laughs> so, it was, and it was, so it was dictated by what they called the we, and they dictated this thing and described the images that should be on the cards. It's a great set, and it's astrologically oriented as well. But it's, again, single source stuff seems to deflect the entire way things go. Now, this is what I'm leading up to here. The important thing is this, is that I've been teaching a class on symmetrical right, which is an offshoot of Uranian astrology now. I'm on class number 47, no, 48, it'll be class number 48. And the idea that I'm dumping stuff, because, you know, I'm getting old, you know, I'm dumping stuff, I'm trying to get things out there. And as I've been doing it, also realizations have come along. The reason I actually started it was because the guy that came after me, corporate world, when I was doing the corporate thing, this guy, Robert Geritano, called me up and he wanted pointers on chart wheels. So I called him classes for BG, you know, <laughs> Tom Geritano. And 
in it while I'm doing them. And this and that ideas come. The, the, the class is an extremely interactive class and it's building a, a body of ideas. One of the realizations is that astrology traditionally reflects its culture. This is really important. We go back to the Mayan culture, and it's a very different astrology than anything we've ever done. The Mayans were using a cycle material. You know, this is the beginning of November. So we just had the superior conjunction of Venus to the sun, right? Which means that Venus now is going to be an evening star. It's the nice Venus, right? But Venus has disappeared. Their god got eaten by the sun. You know, that guy kind of is God. They're scared and hanging out in their houses for the next five or six days until the reappearance of Venus in the evening sky, reborn as a new god. You know, Very different take on astrology than our culture handles it. So for them, creating cycles on cycles on cycles becomes the critical thing. We get to people like the Babylonians, right? And the Babylonians are an omen-based astrology. But 3,000 years of state-sponsored astrology, no time before or ever since, the Babylonians were so good, even with Ptolemy and all this other jazz, the Greeks never created an ephemeris, nor did the Romans. Mm. They all relied on the Babylonian ephemerides, which ran out in AD 500. Hence, the Dark Ages, no more calendars, until the Alphonsian tables appear 200 years later. So when they talk about the Dark Ages, it's because nobody knew what was going up in the sky at the time, <laughs> because the culture could not match the caliber of the needed astrology. The Babylonians were so good that they've been, you know, unearthing everything from the libraries in Nineveh, right? They came across a tablet on Jupiter's motion that demonstrates a use of calculus more in advance than Newton from 2,500 years ago. And they're like, they're freaking out because it's like a really good way of doing calculus. And, and they did it pragmatically. It was a very pragmatic culture. They had to do things by necessity. Well, the Babylonian astrology fits the culture. The Egyptian astrology, right, was all about the dead and the world, the world's after death and how we got traveled to these worlds. Remember, everything they did was their calendar was built around the heliacal rising spica, you know, and all this other stuff. Again, it mirrors their culture. When we get to the Greeks, we, when the Chaldeans transmit on the island of Kos, the culture to the Greeks, the leftover Babylonian material, remember Babylon was gone for 200 years. The Assyrians that took over, they had a single god. They didn't care about astrology, you know, so they, they let the astrologers go. And if you think about it, there's no zodiac in the Babylonian system. Planets move in what was called the normal path through the stars. But it was still the idea that they were tracking where the gods were going. Oh, where are the gods going? Who are they talking to now? You know, that kind of stuff. But they had no zodiac. They had no sense of aspect as we would know it. Some as, you know, conjunctions, oppositions. Oppositions weren't understood. They were not. You couldn't see on the other side, right? And all this other stuff. And there's this 200-year period between the Babylonians and it gets tra getting transmitted to the Greeks. I think that it was the idea that it was a nepotistic system in Babylon, and that the priest would teach the son, and the son would teach the next, you know, the son of the son, et cetera, et cetera. And they would have to keep secrets from the king. Because you see, the astrologers gave the king's power through the idea that was the divine sense of the sky, there's a specific term for it, but it gave the king the ability to make the calendars, predict when the floods would occur. This is, you know, the mandate of heaven. 
and was gave them the mandate of heaven. Now, this meant that the kings had to be wary of the astrologers. So the kings had to know as much as the astrologers did. That's why it was an orthodoxy. The astrologers couldn't stray from the Sumerian teachings. So you'd see in the letters, oh, King Nezebarah, you know, and he'd be going, oh, you're great, you're wonderful, and the sky wouldn't be here without you, right, and all this other stuff. And then he'd say, Jupiter is rising in the east with Algol, and the armies are going to come and destroy the grain fields in the north, you know, and the king would write back and say, don't you mean the grain fields in the northeast? <laughs> you know? That kind of thing. And, and didn't you mean with Algol, didn't uh, Antares rise just earlier with the Venus and uh, mitigate some of that stuff? And you see this back and forth. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. It's, it, yes, yes. It's going to be the Northeast. You know, <laughs> These letters would go back and forth because they had to stay within an orthodoxy. I could just imagine what the family conversation was like where you'd have the father talking to the son with the grandpa in the next room saying, yeah, grandpa found out about this idea that this, we're really going around the sun, you know, and, and we've got this, this line of planets and aspect and all this other jazz. Comes to the Greek, it explodes. There's the missing document, the writings of Hermes Trimagestae. The first document is a Dorotheus, right? The writings of Dorotheus. And the first thing we see in Dorotheus is a thesis on the sums, the lots. The lots are really important to the ancient Greeks. But this idea of astrology as a reflection of the culture comes out in the Greeks. The Greek system is one where if you lived in Athens, you can go to Marathon, right? You can go to the islands. But if you went to Sparta, they cut your head off. Mm -hmm. And if you lived in Sparta, you can go to Marathon. You can go to the islands. But if you went to Athens, they'd cut your head off. But if you live the marathon, you can go to both places. The idea of the city-state and the place where the gods traveled and rested started to take on an ideology of all of its own. The idea of what we call symbolic astrology gets born through the Greek culture because it mirrors Greek culture. It mirrors the movement of the gods. The gods had places they could go where they would be rested and fed and, and sustenance and places where they would go where they would get hung and their entrails would get left out in the sun. We have this Greek astrology and we have this explosion of Babylonian information. A whole new astrology comes out. Our Western culture is founded in this stuff. A lot of people think a lot of it comes from the Egyptians, but the Egyptians picked up most of their stuff by trading with the Babylonians, just like in India. India traded with the Babylonians. India is a great case in point of cultural astrology because in India, every part of astrology that ever comes to India gets frozen in time. It's like a fossil. It's the, the land of astrological fossils. Nothing changes. <laughs> Once it hits India, it doesn't change anymore. It stays forever. And India gets most of its astrology layered on top of the Babylonian stuff that they had when Alexander the Great comes through. Babylon does everything, right? And then it falls. And the guys that come there, the Assyrians, yeah, they're, they're one of the first of the desert religions, the first of the guys with a single god. And, and yeah, there's a start of time and end of time and heaven and hell and all that stuff, right? Bad, bad demons and whatnot, right? And then that civilization falls. Persia falls to Alexander the Great, who has this new uh, Greek astrology with him, right? And he comes going down to India, and he's you know, doing one kingdom after the next. And India was a series of city-states. 
It was little kingdoms, just like the Greeks. So it's like the same thing. He is lamenting. Oh, my God. We went over the hill and there was another village and another army. We went over the hill and they had elephants. And we went over the hill and that kind of thing. And he gives up. You know, he comes back. He dies on the way back. You know, and all this. It was a retreat. He was like, everybody drops dead at the Khyber Pass. That kind of thing. But he lays the astrology that he brings there, freezes in time. The Ayanamsa is generally around the time of Christ for the most part, you know, so we get the idea of constellational astrology being a big deal for that kind of a thing. Whereas the Greeks really come along and they say, you know, it's a tropical system. You know, it's the Earth-Sun interaction that really gets everything going and that sort of stuff. Well, the Greek system with the symbolic ideas, it works as we go forward. The idea of rulerships, dignitaries, and all this other, just the symbol, the not direct material. Remember, nobody did transits and all this other jazz. Things like primary directions come directly out of the Babylonian you know, pantheon and stuff. It's just different because they're using the horizon. The use of the horizon of the Babylonians is very important, predates the zodiacal use of things. Right? And when you think about it, the zodiac is a horizontal plane. It only takes a partial part of the sky, whereas the horizon is generally in an incline to the pole, is almost a vertical circle. The whole sky sweeps across it. We can get things like fixed stars measured and all kinds of stuff. So the horizon is really important. That's why I mentioned that guy Blackwell, you know, and, and the idea of individual characters. Blackwell plays a big role in this, but as astrology moves beyond the Greeks, it moves to the Romans. And the Romans, even though the Roman was an empire, the Romans were an empire of disparate places. You know, they, they owned Egypt where the grain came from. They owned Spain, and that's where they had more grain, more plantings. You know, the Middle East, where they had the, the weird Jewish people running around. Everybody, you know, it was all these, the Gauls up in, in France, and then all stupid people in the UK. It wasn't like a single unified culture. So still, you had the idea that Julius Caesar did not have a good time even coming to his own hometown. You know, I mean, he's hanging out in, in, in Alexandria with Cleopatra. He's having a good time. He comes home, he gets killed, right? That's the end of that, right? So it's the same thing as the gods not having a good place to hang around. So the Roman culture embraces Greek astrology whole cloth without doing much to it. Even you get guys like Valens and stuff like that and Firmicus Maternus, right? He's, he's basically a businessman. And he's basically, well, I'm going to do this book on astrology because nobody else has done a book on astrology. He says, but I'm not a good astrologer. You know, there are good astrologers out there, but it fits with the culture. We get to the medieval times and the medieval times are still very much like the Greek places. The, the European culture that astrology gets let loose Astrology gets let loose from the, the Bedouins, essentially, you know, the Arabics, right? These, these guys that inherited the Mideastern lands, well, they're trading on the Mediterranean. Astrology basically goes to Constantinople and then right into Central Europe pretty fast. And it's this heretic knowledge. What do we do with this, the old Hur of Babylon? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's heretic knowledge, this pagan knowledge. Remember, at a time when if you could read the Bible, you were put to death. Because you had pagan knowledge, you could read. It was just not allowed. But the culture embraced it. So astrology had to trim its sails. First of all, 
judicial astrology was not well looked upon because it meant that, that you were influencing people's lives, you were taking away their free will. The church did not like that at all. Most astrology that comes out of this era is electional or horary. When is my uncle going to die? Give me the money, right? Or when should we attack the city? You know, only when you have a giant patron where you, you'll actually get a chart read. I mean, one of the most amazing things to me was that you have this astrology about Zodiac itself, which is all about the ascendant, the minute of birth. Well, there was only 358 horoscopes from antiquity, period, all the way up to the 11th century. 358 charts, and they were coveted. To have any of those collections, they were small collections of 30 charts or so apiece, was killer. You had good charts. And of course, these were famous people. Somebody took the time to go out and look at the sky when they were born. There's not a lot to go on. This idea of creating a th an astrology out of an ascendant in midheaven when you have no clocks is a little astounding to me. And we, we get to the Renaissance, we get to the late part of the medieval period, and the early Renaissance, clocks are appearing. And you notice all the clocks, like the one in Frankfurt and stuff, were all astrologically based. They have all kinds of material going on, trying to get as much information out as possible, because, hey, we got a mechanical device that could tell you when the sun's on the midheaven. But astrology was still hampered. It was still critically pushed out. It was not well-liked by the church. And you have to remember, astrology played an extremely important pragmatic role all through this period that nobody talks about. And that is, most astrologers gathered at the seaports because they could calculate the tides. They sold that to the sea captains. And then they would do the electional chart for the ship sail for the owners because the owners wanted to see that ship come back. They wanted stuff going out there. So astrology gets the shaft and it gets to become irrelevant because of the deals with the church. And it really didn't have too many legs to stand on. It's the idea of delineating the natal chart and all this other jazz. Goes dead, gets extinguished until we get to the latter part of the Victorian era and the Brits start bringing it back. There's a few people in France, there's a few people in Germany, and they're bringing it back. Safariel starts writing horse race charts so they can make money to feed all his kids. He's the first guy to do a round chart since the earliest Greek horoscopes. The earliest Greek horoscope was a round chart on a rock. <laughs> it's described on a rock, right? He did a round chart, wrote that back. Got rid of that square stuff. Alan Leo liked it, took it up. Gets rid of the square chart. Right. The square chart is, is critical because, it, again, they're changing the astrology culturally to fit what they knew. So they had the rulerships and everything else, as Alan Leo and all these guys at the turn of the century, the last century, are doing it. But it's like a historical document. And then even the historians themselves, Ping Green and, and all these other guys that did the translations, you can see from their introductions, they hated doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. This was the, the horror of Babylon, this junk, this garbage, this magical stuff. But hey, there's nothing else to translate. Let's translate it, right? So they were doing it, and it was a rediscovery period until, in our case, my case, Alfred Witter comes along, right? This German guy, well-educated. He was the surveyor for the city of Hamburg, hooks up with another guy named Sigrun, who is a uh, navigator, knew a celestial sphere inside out. You know, and they had access to the pre-World War I libraries. And World War I did a lot of destruction. The library at Liège in Belgium contained a lot of medieval works. 
gone, vaporized. That's the first thing the Germans mm-hmm. took out. So they get together uh, right after the war and basically are remaking astrology in the likes of science at the turn of the century. They wanted the astrology to be like the periodic table, predictable, do this, do that. You get a formula, get this thing. And he goes back to the idea of the lots. He goes back to the idea of the Pars Fortuna. And basically, if you look in Mashallah, in his translation, the, the one of the great Arab astrologers, right, in his introduction, He's talking about, yeah, you have the regular stuff, you know, planet signs and houses and stuff, but then you have the parts, the lots. And if you're not using the lots, you aren't using astrology. Right from the get-go, the lots were half of the systems, but yet we have a bias in today's historical view on things that was it. The thinking is that the lots or the parts die out after, what's his name, Kepler decides that he can find no reason for them or no reasoning behind them, mm. right? You know, so we get the situation where astrology is getting redone by these guys in Germany, right? And they're trying to mimic the actual culture. The first thing that Vita does is he throws out the rulerships completely, right out the window, gone. He brings in the cardinal axis as a central figure in the whole thing because it has to do with the earth as a unit, as a whole, which while the ancient Greeks knew about the cardinal axis, because I mean, everything was Anticia. I mean, the whole idea of planetary pictures comes from Anticia, reflections on the cardinal axis. They didn't know how to use it. I mean, people didn't travel worldwide. Most folks never went more than 10 miles from their village. Only ambassadors and businessmen would travel at all, or somebody in the army, even at that. So the idea of the cardinal axis, he makes it a primacy, and he starts breaking up astrology into a hierarchy, where there are these factors that if you're not connected to these factors, it's not going to happen. But if you're connected to these factors, it is going to happen. That sort of stuff. Very Germanic, very, very negative, right? Because in World War I is where he got all the ideas, you know, death and destruction all over the place. And one of the artifacts that came out of the Iranian, the early Iranian work was the idea of these funny planets, these things called the trans-Neptunians, as we've come to call them, right? Mm -hmm. Why didn't he discover Pluto, you know, and why did he find these other planets? And they're the laughing stock of the system, except for one thing that's only occurred in the last 15 years, is that Vita only looked in one place. He looked between 250-year orbits to 600-year orbits. Well, that was in 1918 through 1925, right? It was, that was in that era. In 1951, the Kuiper Belt is postulated. In 1982, they're finding objects in the Kuiper Belt, Sedna and all these other characters. The Kuiper Belt definition is 239-year orbits to 625-year orbits. He defined the Kuiper Belt precisely 70 years before its discovery. And his theory was that I'm going to postulate these planets because we've been seeing them showing up in the horoscopes, and it fits with my theories of electromagnetic spheres. Right? It was like Bodhi's Law. This is where these things should be, that kind of stuff. His thinking was that if they put these telescopes up and find the planets, it will vindicate astrology. Now, this was not out of the question of the era. Because at the time, at the time, the astronomers were postulating hypothetical planets, because this was the fastest way to immortality. 
right? Hey, Herschel, we still remember his name. Leverrier and Adams, oh, we still remember those guys, right? Even Simon Newcomb, who was the, the guy who made the best sun and moon tables of the era, postulated three or 400 planets. Because if they found them, you know, it was forever. So he was at the tail end of it. By 1922, Hubble comes along and says, wait a minute, we got these galaxies out here. We have these much larger objects that stand outside of our local solar system. And at that point, astronomy forgot about the solar system until we started having to shoot rockets up. It was all about cosmology. It was all about what was way out there. So we come forward in time, and through the 20th century, systems begin to come and go, right? And that's why it's important. For example, we have a single guy, Cyril Fagan. Now he hangs around with Brigadier Firebrace. He hangs around with Garth Allen and a few other people. But it's really his ideas create an entire structure of astrology, the entire sidereal school, Western sidereal astrology. Single character. Does the system survive? That becomes the thing. The same thing happens with Jandro in the 20s. Jandro put forth an entire predication of modern astrology, and nobody buys it for a second. So he kills himself and burns all his books up. It's a big loss. Now, Charles Jane did most of his work on Jandro's work. All through the 20th century, we see these singletons coming up with a new system. Why are these guys coming up with new systems? Why are they fighting this whole thing? Why, you know, until we get to the mid-80s, actually the mid-90s. And in the mid-90s, Schmidt and Zoller go to Rob, my partner Rob, you know, and they start getting together. Bruce Schofield and I used to hang around with Zoller all the time. And he was, we called different systems. You know, Schofield was going into the Mayan work. I was Uranian. Zoller was medieval. He was a character. He was himself. Very intense life. But this was the way it was. It was like, okay, we knew our history. And it was a question of, well, how are we going to create an astrology of the future? Right? Now, in the same era, one of my earliest teachers and associates was Arthur Blackwell. And Arthur Blackwell grew up with Jim Lewis. Jim Lewis was the little kid on the block. They used to all play stickball together. And who would know that both of them go out and become Western sidereal astrologers? And Jim creates the astrocartography that we know today, mm -hmm. right? That entire system of ideas, which comes right out of the sidereal school, if you really get sidereal astrology. And Arthur comes along, and Arthur's, he's the son of a cartographer and the grandson of a horologist. A horologist studies clocks, clockworks. And his father worked for the UN and helped design the UN flag, the polar-centric flag. You look at that flag, that flag is the whole world where you're looking down at the North Pole and the entire outer ring of the flag that's, that's hidden by the symbolism, right, is the South Pole. Mm -hmm. So the North, hem Northern Hemisphere looks the way we would expect to see it. The Southern Hemisphere gets very distorted. But this is called a polar projection. And Arthur took the idea and created what was called a polar azimuthal equidistant projection, which is a very different way of doing this breakdown. But the central theme of a polar chart is the horizon is critical in it. I don't know how he did it, but Arthur worked at the Strand before he worked for the New York Astrology Center. He worked there for about six years, and the Strand is, you know, it's five stories up. It's a very famous used bookstore in the world. And Arthur was one of the go-to guys there. He knew where everything was. 
they'd say, hey, Arthur, where's that manuscript from the 14th century? And he'd say, oh, it's on the fifth floor behind the fourth shelf. The people keep putting it behind the book so nobody will see it. <laughs> that kind of stuff. He knew everything. And apparently, if we look at the way the material came out of Babylon, the way it was processed, right? They find the libraries in Nivian in 1804 or 1800. I'm, I'm bad with dates like that. You know, I was, I was bad at that kind of history. And they can't make heads or tails out of cuneiform until around the late 1870s. And they're getting a word or two. Oh, this means the king, you know, that kind of stuff. It was kind of like they had no Rosetta Stone that we had for the hieroglyphics. And you look at cuneiform and basically it's just a bunch of dashes and lines and, and you know, and clay. We get to about 1920 and that's when Vita is operating, operating and they're just beginning to put grammar together. But they have no translations. There is nothing. Vita had no exposure to Babylonian ideas. He only had exposure to Hellenistic ideas and medieval and Renaissance ideas, right? He liked Marinus. By the 1940s, they were actually beginning to get some prose out of the stuff. And the scholars began writing their papers in the 50s. Arthur read all those papers. And Arthur comes back with this doctrine of Perans, Peranatelans. And the Perans are when a planet is rising on the horizon and another planet is crossing the midheaven, or a planet is rising, another planet is setting. The term means co-transits in the Greeks. And he comes up with this doctrine of Perans using the polar azimuthal, and it's like, oh, that's very interesting. And then we begin to realize, Arthur didn't even get that far with it, but we begin to realize that this thing is both celestial and terrestrial. It can plot places on the earth, as well as fixed stars and everything else. And then, oh, not only that, this is a real armillary sphere, complete armillary sphere in one unit, without all the rings, without all the other junk. And he could do primaries on it directly. And it's like, oh, <laughs> okay. And Arthur's like just doing along, doing all this stuff. Well, he had a bad end. We brought him into astrolabe, and he got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and died. He gave all his works to good astrologer Ken Bowser, sidereal astrologer within the sidereal works. But he brings this thing forward. Now, Arthur, myself, and Rob used to fight about it all the time. We implemented a PA in a program called Print Wheels. And we had arguments about the glyphs, the shape, where lines should go. It was a mess. Scrapped the whole thing until 2003 when I got Ray White, my programmer, to implement a PA. He who laughs last gets the last laugh with nobody else in the room. So Arthur really doesn't have anything else to say about it. So I implemented it the way I wanted to see it. And I know that Rob didn't like the way I implemented it at all. <laughs> it's entirely different about the whole thing. Well, we get to this period in the late 90s. And this idea is happening about astrology is not authentic, all right? We need to go back to the roots of astrology. It's not authentic any longer. And there's all this cheap astrological, psychological crap floating around, right? Now, I remember going to Donald Weiser's place over there in, on Broadway in New York with a load of books from the, from the center, right? Because we traded books all the time. And he's giving me this big dissertation about... You got to do eight by five books, Gary. You got to do eight by five. They're easy to find. You can just saddle stitch them, get them out the door, $4 a pop. They're great. And he was getting everybody and their brother's son to write anything. He would publish anything. 
And most astrology getting published in the late 20th century was what I call placement books. Oh, if you have Venus in Gemini, well, then he's going to like you if you talk a lot, you know, that kind of thing. It was all placement stuff. Writers are not necessarily astrologers. You know, we have a lot of writers today who we love their books, but as astrologers go, we can throw them in the garbage. So we get to this point, astrology is inauthentic. And basically, Schmidt came out of nowhere and he got Rob's ear and they put together in my backyard. Well, that was putting a light post, the idea of Project Hindsight, Schmidt, Zoller and, and Rob. You're going to start retranslating all the works with astrology in mind. Now, it started a very important thing. What we did was we cut off academia from making astrology irrelevant. That movement of taking the control of the translations into our own world and making them scholarly, short-circuited academia, making us irrelevant completely. Now, it's very clearly demonstrated that astrology has a cultural role in all of history. And I'm going to tell you, they would have thrown that part out. But we still come to this problem of astrology has to reflect its culture. So here they are. They start going into the historical part and astrology splits. We get two clear veins going on. Now, meanwhile, your teacher is in the background, right? He's 1987. Mm -hmm. So he puts his thing together. He's in the background. He's percolating and talking to people and whatnot. Other schools as well. Like I say, they've been coming and going, percolating in the background. Well, the main one that seems to come forward is this idea of experiential astrology, right? The Jeff Green thing gone wild, right? Other people are abandoning what it was they were doing before, like a Steve Forrest type of a character, right? Goes in and grabs it whole cloth because they're looking for something to wear, literally. Now, the experiential movement was, has all the criticism of the old psychological movements of the 20th century. They're basically pop psychology with a, a thin jacket of astrology over them. And the astrology isn't even that good. It's not a good technical movement or a technical thing. And you have other things going on. People don't know a thing, stuff like ephemeris accuracy and all. You know, people are talking about the Pluto return of the United States. Mm -hmm. You can't have a Pluto return of the United States when we've only studied Pluto's orbit for like 75 years. It really does go out of whack. We have no idea where it is, where it's going to be tomorrow even. You know, yeah. We have great telescopes and stuff, but if you realize that a, one minute of birth time is 15 minutes of arc, in the sky for the meridian. You start playing around with accuracies and stuff. You have to start getting planets that are accurate to like thousands and thousands of a second of arc, which is not much movement at all. So we have these systems that have come up that are pretty lame, as far as I'm concerned, because the psychological material that are in them and it's what's driving them isn't that deep either. It's kind of like a New York City puddle. A little thin, occupies a lot of space. Meanwhile, there's the movement towards historical astrology, right? This is the authentic stuff. These guys knew what they were doing. And what have they done? They've resurrected a lot of mummies. There's a lot of dead zombies walking around because these systems are incapable of operating in a modern culture when you really get down to it. It really is true. I don't think we're going to predict that somebody's going to get eaten by a pack of dogs. And this is the <laughs> level of interpretation that goes on there. Now, the historical thing, though, did accomplish a very important thing. 
but it leaves astrology in a very strange place. In the Uranian system, we do have those funny planets, and one of the things that rules astrology with the funny planets is the combination of Uranus and Apollon, where Apollon rules science and nice things, and Uranus is the astrology itself in its pure form. So it's the science of astrology, but it also is the implication of technology. In other words, technology far and wide. Well, since the mid-90s, actually earlier, a little earlier than that, transiting Neptune has been running at this midpoint. The speed of the midpoint is identical to Neptune's speed. So basically, you have this midpoint moving, and Neptune's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Since that time, it breaks up in 2024. In 2024, not only does the Neptune cease being at the midpoint, but one of the other transneps Poseidon takes over. This occurs on the cardinal axis while Uranus and Apollon are Antissia, which means a major cultural change for astrology or a major cultural implication coming in, right? And it also means a major implication for technology in general. We all know that a bunch of business people have figured out that if they make you angry and disgusted all the time, that you're going to do political stuff that they want to see you do. So we have a lot of social medias built on. Yeah, I just say to people, you know, are you dissatisfied and angry? And if they say, yeah, I go, oh, you've been on Facebook too long. <laughs> and it's, it's a moneymaker. This is a moneymaker. But it's the implication of technology. The fact that China knows when you spit on the street out of a couple of billion people and can identify where you peed five minutes ago, that's all going to come out. And it's all going to become very obvious uh, when all this occurs. But the other thing that begins to occur is astrology is going to become de facto part of the culture. And we're going to have an astrology basically outside of a few odd systems like U.S. system or the symmetrical system and all that jazz. Most of it will not reflect the culture whatsoever. I mean, zodiacal releasing, hey, it works great, but it's for another place and another time. We don't have God swimming around upstairs, you know? So what's happening with astrology now is to say, I have a, I have a quote here by uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, German philosopher born 1788. Mm -hmm. And he goes here, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. We're about to hit that point. Astrology is going to become very self-evident. The culture is ready for it. Religions, everything else, aren't in tune. They're from a different culture. The Muslim culture is back in the Bedouin area in the seventh century. Catholicism, shortly after that, even earlier and shortly after that, right? But then you get the Protestants, and they're like, oh my God. Look at all the stuff that was in the Bible. Where's the Pope? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, oh, so all of these religions, these desert religions, these religions that are based in time, we have a start in time, we have an end in time. They're going to be irrelevant. Astrology is the, an older religion, in essence. And when we really get down to it, polytheistic, right? We believe everything's alive, but we also don't believe in a beginning or end of time. And we're the only guys that study time. Historians study the past. We study both as if it's the same mechanism. You know, very few characters do this. Very few professions allow for this. 
And in this idea of time being timeless is in direct conflict to most of the, what I call the desert religions of the world. You know, we're more in keeping with guys like Buddha and we're even good in terms of the I Ching, you know, with Taoism. Taoism does not postulate a beginning or end of time. Buddha says, oh, well, it's when we all cease having consciousness, it'll be all cool. But, but even there, he doesn't say it's an end game. And science follows all of these other religious dictates. You know, science says, hey, bing, bang. Well, we don't know what happened before that. Eh, it must have been magical, right? And then we have, oh, the end. We just dissipate off into nowhere land. Or we get eaten up by a black hole, you know, that sort of thing. But there's an end. So it's a funny thing. So astrology is about to, as far as I can tell, make a leap. It's all set up for it. I mean, you got to realize we are the millennials religion at this point in time. <laughs> you know? It's really true. You know, it was an oldest Uranian astrologer and she was a real German. She was so German. She was in the Hitler youth, but she would go to me. She was blind. I had to make charts for her out of Astrolabe that were like these big poster sized things so she could actually see the chart. But she would go to me, Gary, I don't believe in religion. I don't believe in anything except astrology. It's never lied to me. It always tells the truth. It's always been there for me. I don't believe in anything else. <laughs> it's okay, you know? But this is kind of where I believe that things going. Now, I've been blabbering away here for a bit. I don't know. You guys have any comments <laughs> on yeah. I mean, we covered so much. You hit on quite a few of the things that were on my mind. Thank you for all that. So you're saying that you see that where things are going astrologically heading towards 2025, astrology coming more into the mainstream as an accepted science-ish? In Western culture as an accepted cultural can't say artifact, but belief system in essence. Okay. So it won't be questioned as much. You gotta realize just two weeks ago, the Nobel guys just gave an award to three quantum theorists because they're able to demonstrate entanglement, quantum entanglement, which is important for quantum computing. In other words, the idea is you have two computers are next to each other and they're doing information, but they're influenced by this third computer that could be anywhere else, mm -hmm. right? Well, when you ask them, I've read the guys say, well, can you explain this to us? And they say, no, we can only demonstrate it. That's exactly where astrologers are at. Because right. see, the scientists get on our case about a mechanism. Oh, well, if astrology is working, we can't measure anything. There's no gravitational waves. There's no electromagnetic fields. It's too mild. It's too small. Well, we've never said that we know why. We can demonstrate how. We can show it very clearly. No matter how good the tools are, there's still stone knives and axes. You got to remember, every other craft from medicine to chemistry has had the luxury of 800 years of development in a modern culture. We are not like that at all. We're stuck with materials from 2000 years ago, for the most part right? Reimagining the materials within our culture or within the structure of our culture. And still, it's not like we're going to magically have 400 years of the best minds of the planet working on our subject. We've had 600 years of the worst minds of the planet <laughs> taking up astrology. You know, when you went to school, you were never told, oh, become an astrologer. It's going to be great living. You can have a wonderful life. No, you were told become a lawyer, become a doctor. 
go into dental work. <laughs> you'll make more money. You'll have a happy life. But the truth of the matter is, I think, what was it, about 25 years ago, Parade Magazine, they were doing a survey on people's salaries and ranking the happiest jobs. I think the number one job was an actuary. If you were an actuary, you were really happy. You made a lot of money. Nobody hassled your life and you had a great life. Wow. We were number four. Hmm. We made good money and we had a, a good lifestyle. And you can come down to it. We don't have to answer to any boards. <laughs> we don't have to answer to any hierarchy. If the state says that we can practice and not call it fortune telling, we're in good shape. This is our golden years, by the way. Once astrology becomes established within the hierarchy or within the mainstream, it's going to lock up very, very quickly. You know, it's going to become an orthodoxy. The orthodoxy will be in accordance with whatever culture we're in right? Because that's the important part. Mm -hmm. But it will still be locked up as much as the Babylonian stuff was locked up by the king. That will happen. Let's look like any other orthodoxy. There will be an established way of doing it that's commonly accepted, and that's just the way it's done. Yeah, you guys will be heretics. <laughs> <laughs> well, we take true. you out and burn you on the stake. You get burned on the stake. I get burned on the stake immediately. You've seen the technological and been a part of the technological developments in the astrological field pretty early on. And yet we're also seeing this kind of movement into the mainstream. And yet there's this cultural component to it that seems to be a, a huge influencing factor. It's not caught up. Look, right now, to date this thing, so to speak, right now the, in the United States, the Fed is trying to fight inflation. And they're fighting inflation by raising the market rate that the banks lend each other. That's really essentially it. So they're, they're making the cost of money more expensive. And they figure, oh, this will stop inflation. Where the really the root causes of our current inflation have more to do with China locking out cities, uh, boats not getting filled. So the company sold all the boats and now that everybody wants the boats, right? Airlines you know, mothballing their fleet and laying people off. And all of a sudden, everybody wants airline services. The issue with inflation has nothing to do with the interlending between banks. Mm. So they basically only have a hammer and a nail, <laughs> but we really need, you know, nuts and bolts to fix the thing, you know, more complicated material. So they're going to hammer us into a big recession next year. This is going to be a human-made disaster that you're watching unfold. So, you know, it's, just, it's like sort of dates us. Astrology is in the same boat. We have some systems like yours, uh, systems like the, the symmetrical system that's coming forward. You know, I made allusions to it with the polar azimuth or authors thing. We have some other ideas in astrology that might be workable. Unfortunately, I'm sure that experiential type of astrologies, the more psychological ones are going to probably have precedence because only in the 20th century, the people are interested in themselves. I mean, you got to remember, Freud and, and Jung come along to the turn of the last century and say, hey, there's somebody inside <laughs> who's talking about stuff, and it ain't me. <laughs> and it's a motivator, and it's making me do stuff, and it's an archetype. Only in the 20th century, we really realize these things. But one other side note, too, is that in terms of evolution and stuff, the, the idea of the uh, involvement of two more chakras or processing point fits very well. If you realize that during the early part of the 20th century, everybody, all the spiritual guys were saying, oh, we're going to go through this big evolution, you know, as if we're going to grow a, th a sixth finger, you know, or get some third eye growing out of our skulls. But the truth of the matter is, it really started in the 14th century. It really started with the printing press 
and the libertarian ideas, it was the way humans think, not how we think, not the mechanical stuff, the way we process and what it was we began to conceptualize. When you read like a book like The Book of My Life by Cardan, right, or you read something else from that era, they always go on, they talk about God, how great God is for a while, and then how great the king is for a while, you know, and that sort of stuff. And then they get into the, the meat and potatoes. Here's how you do X, Y, and Z, and here's how you do X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden, they have a list of aphorisms, and another list of aphorisms, <laughs> and another list of aphorisms. And, and, and each aphorism is not related to the next aphorism, it's just ideas, ideas, ideas. Like a child, when he's young and naming everything in their universe, Oh, that doggy's name is Spot. The machine's name is Dorgo. You know, that kind of thing. They do all these different things. Well, humans, after that period, I mean, it isn't as if conceptualization didn't exist. I mean, they built cathedrals and stuff. Amazing things go on. But as a general rule, we begin to see conceptualization build upon itself more and more and more. So finally, the 20th century unleashes the idea of mass destruction, mass movements, the individual starts to emerge. The idea of the person inside the person starts to emerge. And psychology is born. You don't think for one minute that King Henry VIII gave a shit about what was going on in your head while he was putting you on the rack. He just knew it was painful. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was no magical, conceptual things going on in there. So one of the big ideas that is that we have already evolved. We have to fill the form out. And, you know, things like developing tools like social media and stuff like that, our tools are only representative of what we're actually thinking. So the fact that we're building these things in the first place, that's why I said the implications of, of it all is going to be pretty mind boggling. But the fact that we build these things in the first place is an extension of self. Every time we build a telescope and we look at the finger of God out there, we're extending our ability to see. Every time we build a machine that makes buttons for our shirts, we're extending our ability to manipulate the universe or manipulate stuff, which is a whole other talk world. <laughs> it's a whole other set of ideas. It gets weird ass from there anyway. Well, you're talking about this kind of individualism, which is a relatively new thing Very. in the history of humanity. Do you see that being something that will become more pronounced as we're continuing to move forward in these patterns? We're the most narcissistic apes on the on, ever seen in, in life sciences, yes. That will only get worse. We're going to have to figure out a way to deal with narcissistic impulses without forcing us to just become slaves to a collective, so to speak. Mm -hmm. How do you get the individual to stand out from the collective, but yet be part of the collective? As we point out in astrology, right, individuals have changed the course of astrology, not the collective. Right. What do we do? They become the Elon Musks and the, the Putins of the world and the G's of the world are very dangerous characters. We've seen it even in the United States. You know, let an egomaniac who has no education run the country for a while and see what the result is. And it's everybody's at each other's throats, you know? Do you see it turning the corner at some point? I mean, we're heading into 2024, 2025. It looks like things are probably going to slide downhill in a way. What's the timing longer term that you're able to see? In you know, if you use the graphic ephemeris, it's a really nice tool for looking at long range stuff. Uh, you can see the ins and outs as things are moving. Going forward, remember now, when Neptune crosses the Cardinals in two years or so, 
It's going to be doing so by itself, but then it's going to meet up with Saturn. Now, just like we had a Jupiter-Neptune conjunction, and obviously we have inflation in its wake, basically things look better than they really are in many respects. The Saturn-Neptune conjunction is a disaster. You know, we have a clash of time. We have two divergent impulses going on there, the ossification of things and the melting of things at the same time. So what's going to happen is the Neptune will cross over and then the Saturn is going to hit off. Now, we may have a very large outbreak of diseases during that period of time. It does rule cancers. It does rule diseases of the body. The organs aren't too happy. We also note that under Saturn and Neptune times, we get displaced in time. In other words, you know, Saturn is the past, Neptune is the future. And if you're going into the future, you're going to get anxiety-ridden. If you go into the past, you're going to get regretful. So being in the presence is the only way out of it. But nobody's that spiritually evolved to be able to stay in the present for a very long time without your brain drifting off one way or the other, especially if that's the predominant energy that's going on. So it does cross the cardinals. Now, this is unfortunate in the long run, because if you go back to 2017, 2017, we had the Saturn-Sun conjunction at zero Capricorn within nine minutes of arc. And you could see the Supreme Court went right wing. We had guys like Balasandro elected in Brazil, Duarte in the Philippines, the rise of Xi. So as we know, it's the idea of the autocrats coming forward, the limitation of human freedom. The idea of conservatism in the traditional sense means we hold something back to use it later, as opposed to just putting something in a box and leaving it there. You know, so for example, with land, Right when Teddy Roosevelt said, "Let's put together the national parks," it was like, "Okay, we won't rape them now; we'll rape them later." Right. Whereas now, when we put land aside, it's forever difference. But with Saturn and Neptune, it's going to have these forward and backward pulls against uh, a sense of authoritarianism, against a sense of very strong right wing things postulated against people's idealism you know who's going to win. Sorry. It's a sad thing. Because what happens afterwards is now all about what's in the Uranian system. It's about the TNPs. After that Saturn and Neptune business, well, the planets go on their way and various other things go on. Now, one of the guys that works for me, Doug Kellogg, has been looking at when Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are forming different configurations, like when like Pluto goes to the midpoint of Uranus and Neptune, or Neptune's at the midpoint of the Pluto, he says, like, only three of these things happen per century. And he said, right now, in one of the massive, these triad changes. In the Iranian system, what begins to happen is we're going to have a long-term conjunction of Hades and Kronos. And Cupido is going to make the opposition. It's going to come into opposition of that along the way. Now, Hades, Cupido is the mafia. It's a family that's got their nose in the dirt, so to speak. Mm. Kronos is the government's red tape, things that are high. Hades are things that are low, that are disgusting and ridiculous. Hades actually does have the highest form of the universe because it rules selfless service. But for the most part, Hades is miserable, and that's the reason it does service, because it doesn't want to think about itself. It rules dirt, filth, disease, disgust, death. Uh, it rules the past in, in the sense that the past is imperfect, and you can't 
get all the information from the past. When it runs with Kronos, it's going to be a corrupt government or corrupt rulers. When the Cupido comes in, it's rules by families. So right now, we are making the Gilded Age currently in the Western world look like a small-time party. The rich and the movement of people with means in the world is much more. There are a lot more Andrew Carnegie's now and a lot more Henry Ford's than there were. When you look at Putin's chart or you look at Mosk's chart, both of them have Hades and Mars equaling their sun axis. In the end, they're going to both murder a lot of people. Mosk is going to do it through bad technology in the long run when he really gets going. Remember, not all this technology is good. Putin's doing it a little more direct. They should have been butchers, not people in any kind of position to be an influencer or a leader. So we're already beginning to see tribes coming together, small collectives, small elite groups that are coming into too much power for their own good. For example, Trump was a gang that could shoot straight. If Trump knew what he was doing, we would already be under a dictatorship, flat out. It would be a nepotistic dictatorship of a dynasty with families and whatnot, stuff we got rid of at the end, beginning of the last century. Remember, World War I is the critical pivoting point because we killed our parents. <laughs> we killed all the, there were no more kings after World War I. There were no more potentates after World War I. Eh, a bunch of warlords here and there for the most part, but it was a giant Oedipal movement. We killed them all off. So we're coming into a period now where it's unfortunate, where we're going to see the decay of good institutions. We're going to see the rise of very important self-service institutions as well. Remember, it'll be the highest of Hades, you know, taking service to this highest level. But it just gets more polarized. It gets more crazy. Why should we have to fight mafia-like families that have amassed too much fortune in this world? Why should we have to deal with corrupt institutions when theory states that as we get more knowledgeable and more enlightened, that we should see through these things mm -hmm. you know, rapidly? So that part's unfortunate. Through the 30s, we're going to see bad dictatorships. We're going to see disruption of freedom. Now, Andre Barbeau, the French astrologer, towards his death, he made the statement that the United States, he's all of the United States, he goes, has till 2080, because then it's going to break up into constituent parts, but they have till 2080. So the U.S. survives through this, if we go with Barbeau's ideas, and he was good about this stuff. We'll survive through this, but as far as I can tell, the United States had its highest cultural points just prior to 911. That was the, the, the peak of it all. Mm -hmm. We've been backfighting a cultural slide, and it's a slide into tribalism. And that's the real effect of things. And when you have tribalism, you automatically have racism. You automatically have me versus them, us and other, that sort of stuff, which is going to make some pretty bad wars. That's the thing. Previous wars were over material. The guy next door has all the wheat. We don't have any wheat. Let's go take it. You know, that kind of thing. That was a war. This is a war that's cultural. This is a war over the heart and soul of where people get to believe in how much room they have for their own personal freedom. Like I say, the problem with a social media-driven world is the narcissist. Big issue.
So knowing all of this and seeing all of this and studying all these patterns and all of this history for as long as you have, you can look at these certain configurations and say, well, this is kind of character we're dealing with in this person that he should be a butcher, not a president or whatever, yeah. whatever that is. And yet he is the president, you know? That's right. So where do you see any agency in all of this? Free will agency. There isn't that much. There <laughs> <laughs> really isn't. Hans used to say that destiny is like a spotlight. He says, if you're lucky, you can dance around its peripheral. But if the lights get on you, you can't do anything about it. He says, it's like walking down the street and a gang mugs you. You can't do anything. They're going to take everything you got. And he says, this is the way free will operates. It's spongy. You can actually get away with a certain things. And a lot of it does have to do with the internal view of it. You know, and that's what we talk about. Are you evolved or not? Well, are you angry and annoyed? You know, are you dissatisfied? Right, which means that if you're dissatisfied and annoyed, you're just right into the zeitgeist of whatever's going on at this point in time, because that Saturn and Uranus is still up there, still polarizing everything until March 7th, when Saturn gets the hell out, so to speak. And that will change things culturally quite a bit, make things horrible and relieve things at the same time. Yeah, free will is... It's like the old court justices would say about pornography. I know it when I see it. That kind of thing where when you see a chart that's destined, and this is a person who's trapped by their destiny, whatever it is they're going to have to do, they have to do it in this lifetime. And they're going to wind up doing it in one form or another, whether they choose to or not. There's an old saying that basically said, if God came down and told you exactly what you have to do to make him happy or her happy, you would be willing to do it no matter what. But when our destiny comes calling, we often resist it. Not all destinies are good, but even the good destinies, we often mistakenly resist it. So, you know, when we see a strong issue, we see a strong condition, we know there's no ducking or getting around it. Chang Su, Chang Su, yeah, is the old story where he was basically a civil servant, retired, and the emperor was having a big problem in the central city. And he sent out a deputation to bring him back because his wisdom was so good. The deputation finds him at a bridge fishing. <laughs> he's retired. He's fishing. Right. And they say, we need you. We want you. We, you've got to come back. You've got to help the nation out. And if you do, we'll, people will revere you forever. They'll put up statues for you and, and love you and all that jazz. And guy looks at him and says, hey, you see that tortoise over there? He's having a good time in the mud. He's perfectly happy doing what he's doing. I don't think he'd be too happy if he was made into a statue forever. Yes, people might revere the statue, but he won't be in the mud being happy and wagging his tail, you know, and he turns him down. And it's the idea that this is the thing about destiny is the real life in the Taoistic system. The real life isn't becoming great and famous nor is it becoming poor and wretched. It's living a good life. It's living a life where you have as much personal freedom as you can get. Now, astrology will point some of us out and say, yeah, guess what, buddy? You're going to have to do this stuff. But for the most part, we can dance around it. We can finagle our ways through things. Right now, as we speak, that Mars Neptune is forming in the sky, right? The Mars has just passed the Neptune by squares, coming to station by the 19th of November. It's going to be exact again. It's going to color this entire period of time. 
Are we bound by this thing? Or are all of us going to break out in an infectious disease or smallpox? Or are we going to have some strange, weird-ass idea that's going to make us start a new religion or something like that? No, we're dancing around it as best we could. We can feel real bad for the folks in Europe who don't have enough energy, right? Mars, Neptune. We can yell at the tyrants of the oil pumps, right? The Saudis and, the, and Russians and whatnot for being gluttons. But for the most part, it's a horrible combination. And if we could avoid its wrath, so be it. Mm -hmm. More strength to us. We're still going to all get affected by it. That's the one thing. But how we look at it inside, how we react to it, we don't have that sleepless night. It's a good thing. You know, it's basically my, my spiel on, on free will in general. <laughs> and actually, if you really examine everything down to the nth degree, there really is no free will whatsoever. It's a complete illusion. But it's nice to have. <laughs> it's nice to believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> You know, in the Easter Bible, it's a, it's a good thing. It makes us have a, a meaning for the, for our lives. That seems to be what we keep coming to in, in all of the conversations we have with anyone with a lot of experience. That tends to be the consensus, really. But I think what you're pointing to is important. You know, how we handle that internally, how much we suffer with that or not, you know, maybe as much agency as we have. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'll be doing the solstice this year, I think on the 20th, which mm -hmm. will be the day after the Mars-Neptune is ex exact on this year. So I'm hoping that it goes well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping I don't make an ass of myself or anything like that. We'll, we'll see what happens with all of that. I have uh, something of a, I guess, a more technical question I'd love to get your view on. And I've been really fascinated with the nodes, moon's nodes lately, and kind of digging in deeper there. I'm kind of making a really loose connection between the nodes as basically a calculated point and seeing the significance that they can have within a chart or in our lives astrologically and something like the lots or planetary pictures. So these are also calculated points in a way there's no actual body in space in that point it's relationships how do you see that it works through resonance all right like a guitar string pluck a guitar string at the tune of a and anything that's resonant to the tune of a is going to vibrate or resonate with it mm -hmm. and when we're looking at planetary picture a plus b minus c or even a midpoint or something of that nature we're looking at equal openings resonant arcs and when those resonant arcs are equaling a third arc, like, say, a solar arc or somebody else's chart, it's going to resonate in your own chart as well. And that's how things get set going. Now, the node, the node isn't calculated like we would do a planetary picture or anything like that. The node is a fictitious point that only occurs twice a month when the moon physically crosses. And the rest of it is a projection. So we're projecting from wherever the moon is in its orbit where it's going to cross the ecliptic. If we do it very rigorously, we call that the true node, right? Because the moon oscillates all over the place. So that's why the, the true node goes forward and back, has a retrograde and, and, and forward motion. Rob looked at this. I looked at this. We had a large discussion about it. He wrote an article in his essays about it. But the real meaning is comes down to a lot of things we do in astrology. In astrology, the mean cycle is the useful cycle. The apparent cycle is not very useful. For example, the moon has all kinds of mutational movements in it. The sun has all kinds of uh, secular movements in it as well. 
the moon is nodding all the time. It's uh, running in a corkscrew. Gravitational pull of the Earth and the sun makes the, the sun wobble itself and, and come to a standstill at various points in its orbit. We have to use the, the mean orbits, the mean cycles, for it to work. So in, with the case of the node, we have to use the, the mean projections. We can go from one node to the next node and average that around. Otherwise, in astrology, we go nuts. It's not going to work. So, you know, we've done a bunch of charts with the true node and, and all that stuff, and it was like, oh, you know, the true node would, would sometimes show astounding stuff, but, you know, it would follow the hands first law. You know, every time you do something the first time, it works perfectly. <laughs> Try and replicate it, and it goes crazy. So the node itself is just a mean cycle, and should think of, think about it that way, different than planetary picture where we're doing resonating cycles. And of course, the way we think about the node within the system, it's a personal point. Mm -hmm. We basically say you know, nothing happens to the native unless the personal points are involved. The more, the better, right? And in the node's case, the node is part of the interface between you and other. So if we think of the three great circle crossing, the cardinal axis itself, the ascendant, and then the node as three points of contact. Each one of these is interfaces between the self and that other thing, where the cardinal axis is me and the world. How do I stand in the world? What does the world hold for me? What do I hold for the world? Right? We have that structure. Then we have the environmental structure, the ascendant. So right now, this is an ascendant conversation. Other people are going to listen in, but this is an ascendant situation. We're acquainted. Right? We're not family. We're not hanging out, going to have a, a drink later as friends. We're in a place as an acquaintance. The, the ascendant has to do with the place itself where folks gather. So it's like your neighborhood or how you're perceived in the neighborhood or how you perceive your local environment in that sense. The nodes are the more intimate one. The node has to do with those relationships we really don't have much choice over. Now, a lot of metaphysical astrology says you choose your parents. Well, that might be so, but you don't choose your uncle, your cousins, the guy down the street who's funny, you know, or anything else. These are, in a sense, karmic. These come with you, even with those other primary relationships. The other thing about the node is it's invisible. You guys are together. How do we know that? Do we see you embracing? Do we see you? No, humans can recognize the spiritual connection between two other humans. If a guy from outer space is, is next to a pond in the middle of the night and he sees two people walking by, does he know that they're either coincidentally walking together or if they're connected? A human would know instantly, oh, they're lovers. You know, oh, that guy's going to rob the other person. You know, that guy, we know it. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's that psychic connection that we have. So the node rules those invisible connections. They're karmic because they're the things that make for life. These are the things that we propagate with. So the node is the most intimate relations that we have. The people that we share our lives with, our extended family that's intimate to us. The ascendant, and it's an interface. Here's me on one side, here's the other on the other side, right? And it comes to that point, and that point is the node. And the same thing with the ascendant. Here's me and here's my environment. And then, of course, with the world. Now, if we had, say, the node connected in the natal horoscope to the cardinal axis, these are the people that can make intimacies out of general acquaintance. 
you meet these people and you think you know them for life. <laughs> Everybody's their family, right? But if you have the node with the ascendant, well, that's the guy in the block who's been there forever. He's everybody's buddy, directs traffic for the kids. He's always there at Halloween, you know. He's a fixture. We know him. We're all intimate. He's part of our family. He's been here forever. But we only see him outside of his house. We don't know what's going on inside. We don't know what every... And when you put, of course, the ascendant with the cardinal axis, we get to a mundane thing, which has to do with a place on the earth. So the ascendant and the cardinals is where things are happening, locational. So the nodes open up a whole raft of things. The nodes open up this idea of connections and how we connect. Remember, they're 18.6 years, 36 years cycle as well. These are important relationship cycles, age nine, age 18, age 36, age 72. They're all critical for how you relate on an intimate level. But that's the way we see the darn things. I mean, we devolve a few things, throw a bunch of stuff out. Like I say, Uranians are lazy astrologers for the most part. How do you see Uranian astrology and symmetrical astrology in terms of the cultural movement? Well, I see the Uranian system is 100 years old, and it shows. It's got rust, tarnish. There's no center for it any longer. Uh, even Michael Feist, right, who's the nephew of his grandfather was Ludwig Rudolph, who, who published Vita's works. He doesn't even consider himself an astrologer or a Uranian per se. He considers himself a historian of the system for his family. So the system has gotten old. It got the laugh track pretty bad about the TNPs, you know, the, the funny planets and stuff. Now, symmetrical, however, is the idea that, look, if astrology only has a past, it has no future. And if we're going to continue to work with pools and materials that are left over from a time before the time began, we're in big trouble. So symmetrical is to take the best of the tools as they exist right now and try and cobble them together. And as I say, in terms of primary movement, Vitta was concerned with the zodiacal, which is, you know, a little tilt, but it's basically, it's a horizontal plane. So we only measure the horizontal part of the sky that it's parallel with. Whereas the horizon is almost a vertical circle. You know, if you stand on the equator, it is vertical. When you go 45 north, it still gets most of the sky. It's very little above and below. There's the Arctic Circle where things aren't captured by the horizon. The idea of integrating the horizon and those techniques, what Vita was working with, starts to provide us with a more modern-centered format. Now, one of the bigger things is a few, there's parts that are missing. <laughs> That's where like, I have to beat up Bruce Schofield and stuff like that before he drops dead, is this idea we have to integrate cycles. And then there are even more modern techniques. For example, a fellow named Arch Crawford, Right, he just recently retired. Right, I, I knew him by the name Sam, Sam Crawford. But Arch Crawford, financial astrologer, he made a lot of money in the gold market in 1980. And how he did it is the interesting part: is he did it using what's called composite cycle charts. And basically, what he would do is, if you think of everything like a sine wave, let's say Jupiter through the signs, right, 12 years is a sine wave. And then we have another sine wave, say, of Mercury retrogrades, and we plop it onto that Jupiter thing. So we have a little bit of the Jupiter cycle, and the retrogrades are going like this mm -hmm. on top of that Jupiter cycle. Then we smash in some sort of Venus cycle, say, 540-day cycle or 260-day or cycle. 
And it smashes up that Jupiter line even more so, so that that cycle now is getting really distorted as we keep mashing in these other cycles till finally it begins to look like a moving price average. And you can get a composite, it's called a composite a cycle graph. You can get these things to mimic the moving averages in any commodity, any market, any material. So for example, he did it with the gold prices. And he was working for Goldman Sachs at the time. He was working on the street and he had mathematicians able to do this for him. But I don't know how he got the idea of using planets, but he mashed up Jupiter and Venus and a few other things that came to him intuitively worked with it for two to three years and then started trading with it. Now, we put together a program at one point called the Astro Analyst that when you have one of these things going, it generates buy and sell signals. <laughs> buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. And the thing about it is that the black box is, well, what cycles do you use? I figured out how to figure that part out. There's a method. And at some point, I'm going to come back to that thing. The gastroanalyst can get very dangerous because if it's really functioning well, it could distort all markets because it's that strong. But the idea of the composite cycle graph means that you can do any periodic data, plane crashes, ships sinking, christenings of parks, anything that's of a periodic nature. It doesn't have to happen all the time. It should be able to predict when the next time it's going to happen no matter what it is, and if you can get the right cycles to work for, if you can get all the historical parts. See, what you do is you work for the first 20 years of a gold cycle, and then you project the next 20 years, look for your errors, fix that up, go back. Now you do 40 years, and you go to the next 20 years, and you fix all that up, and then you do 60 years, and you get the next 20 years, and you do fix that all up until you finally get the cycle working really good. Sam got it really working good. Then he lost it all. <laughs> he didn't give a shit for a while. And then he didn't have the tools. And, you know, he's been begging me for the AA for a long, long time. But the thing is, that's a modern technique. This is completely non-astrological, not anything we would consider astrological at all. It basically, if anything, we would say it comes out of the Mayan thinking because it's cycles upon cycles. But the whole concept is that we need to reinvent systems that work. Now, in my case, the symmetrical system is coming out of other concepts reimagining astrology. Now, the system that you guys are using, right? Well, you've got a full system with Yi Ching. And Yi Ching is an astrological device. I mean, it's, it, I Ching describes astrology, even with cardinal axis and even with Anticia and everything is all in there. As a matter of fact, when I studied Tai Chi and I studied with a guy named uh, Mr. Joe for a while, he taught a method that was astrological where the hexagrams change every four minutes with each degree rising. And he didn't know it was astrological. It was a Taoistic method of simple additions and subtractions using the, the chains, but it would change every four minutes. And the demonstration was that a dog barked in the class and he looked at the time, created the hexagram for that particular moment in time, and said that the dog is telling us that there's going to be a party on five o'clock. He showed how the line changes with a time for five o'clock, and then it was a party and all this other stuff. And, you know, he was very good at that. That's a complete system. It's integrated extremely well, right? And you're dropping it into a system that's using the chakras. Different culture altogether. Altogether different culture. But as an interesting side note to it, that, you know, yoga is a Vedic form, whereas Tai Chi is a Chinese form. 
And it's often been said that the Chinese guys got their form from looking at the Vedic guys, going over the Himalayan mountains, going down to India for a while, then coming back. And that was at the temple, Sholin Temple is where all this stuff is supposed to occur in the first place. And that they said that their difference was that they made it move so that they wanted to mimic the animals fighting. So they wanted to be like the animals, that the animals fighting conserved all their energy. And that was the basis of the yoga movements would be the animal in its form to generate that energy. You know, it's all there. You know, you have a complete internal system where you have the same kind of a fusion or a blend where you have a Taoistic system blending into a Vedic system. Now, the extensions on it, that's the interesting part to me. I believe there's a guy named Robin Armstrong up in Toronto who was doing similar kind of work back in the middle 70s. He was basically aligning the I Ching to the zodiacal, but he didn't do anything with chakras. He didn't look for energy patterns that are affecting the chakras. So what comes out of your system is a deep psychological material because you get the, the value of the I Ching on top of what already exists. But it's the energy flows that you're illustrating, and that's the genius of your teacher. You know, he recognized these energy flows. I only was exposed to it through the materials that I saw. I looked at your video. So I don't really know it that in deep. I don't know the mechanics behind how these things are, are happening. But as far as a complete held-in system, it makes a lot of sense. It's an experiment in essence. And this was a guided experiment because he got the material through his either his inner voice or another entity was hanging around whispering in his ear. Every single one of these things has a truth to it. Every, the I Ching is clearly, you know, full truth. The chakra systems and the materials coming out of it, full bore charged up truths to them. And the fact that they should all point to the same direction. And what's good about the system is the fact that, you know, your teachers unlock certain keys to that. Now, obviously, you wouldn't be here doing this stuff unless you saw it functioning. And, and the other thing, too, is nice programming. <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, a lot of text. This guy really worked on this thing, you know? I mean, he, artistically, it's put together. I mean, come on. Most of the stuff coming out of the symmetrical system looks like shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're not artists. We're not, you know, the programming is primitive in many respects, you know? Hell, it's, he could have made solar fire. <laughs> You had mentioned in the beginning about sort of lack of foundational education in astrology. Yes. Do you see any access points for that now for people that are interested in that or where that may be going? I think Kepler really blew it. Kepler was in line where they were supposedly sending the students off to University of Washington for regular courses and then come back for their special courses at Kepler. And somewhere along the line, it became a school for historians. And I do know that when the academic accreditation board, they would have been perfect as a college, as a BA granting institution. But when the uh, Western accreditation examined them, they said, these guys are worse than a, than a hair saloon, guys that are taking federal money. They're worse than a truck driver's school. And it's like, I mean, they, you know, because they were laughing about the astrology for the most part, but it was the way it was conducted. They didn't have anything but historical astrology. They had no other, no psychology, no math, no astronomy, no anything that would have a semblance of what a curriculum should be. 
and they just broke all their ties with Washington State along the way. Because that would have been perfect. You know, you, you enroll in Washington State, you're going to get an accredited degree with an astrological signature to it. But as far as where you can go now, uh, I really feel bad for a lot of the folks that are coming out with PhDs and masters in astrology through the British schools, and they still can't really read horoscopes too well. None of those historical systems led themselves to, to judicial astrology, to reading the natal horoscope. It was just frowned upon. Now, guys like Chris Brennan come along and really bringing out the nuances of Hellenistic astrology. Well, at least in Hellenistic astrology, you have good interpretation for natal work. You know, judicial astrology was part and parcel of it all. But once it hit the Arabs and then went out into the um, medieval and, and Renaissance worlds, no way were the prevailing cultures allowing them to influence people's free will. Now, you got to understand how bad that argument was for us astrologers. I mean, you have guys like St. Augustine, you know, who's running around in a, in a rough cloth sack instead of clothing so it, it would bother him. He had to be reminded of God's wrath and God's pain all the time, where he's like, you know, this astrology, this pagan knowledge, it'll all be shut up and it's horrible and it's disgusting and it interferes with free will and it's, just, you know, only for sinners. And then you get guys within a couple of centuries, St. Thomas of Aquinas comes along and he says, wait a minute. If God didn't want us to do astrology, he wouldn't have given us the heavens. He wants us to look up and look at his magnificence and work. He wants us to interpret, and he wants to talk to us through the heavens. In the Catholic Church, you have these two completely different dissonant voices. It becomes tough. We really have been beat up for the last 2,000 years, you know. And you don't come out of an abusive relationship in any kind of good shape. <laughs> And we've been abused by society, I'll tell you. You know, used and abused. You're getting out as much as you can since you have this large body of work. What Can you tell us a little more about what, yeah. what your offerings are or what you have that's available to people? Not much. First of all, most of my work is subsumed right here at Astrolabe, you know, getting out solar fire and everything else. I didn't want to become a businessman per se in this lifetime, but all my partners dropped dead and went away. <laughs> Unlike the last guy standing in that regard. I'm in the process of writing a book, but God knows when it'll ever come out. It's called An Approach to Astrology. It's about 60% there. Yeah. To shortcut things in case I get whacked out by a truck or something like that, I've been teaching a course for a group so that it's a small collective and hopefully that they're going to define you know numbers have importance mm -hmm. but i'm up to class 48 in another couple of weeks i'll hit class 50 and at class 50 what we're going to try and do is create a curriculum for a symmetrical one of them posed the question well why do you want to give the certificate well some people like to get acknowledged for what they study but there's the idea, too, that most certificate courses, like, say, astrocartography, or if you take the, the courses in England, or you, you take anybody's, uh, Glenn Perry's psychological courses or something like that, or study with your teacher, so to speak, right? It's assuming you're coming in with astrology, and then you're going to learn this other thing on top of it that's going to modify mm -hmm. your astrological teachings and abilities. 
our perspective is that everybody's ruined by their first teacher. <laughs> and you got to start from the ground up. If you're all burnt, useless material, you got to relearn every, everything you know is wrong. So what we're thinking on doing is if we're going to do a curriculum, we really want people who are willing to throw away what they know and take it from the ground up. So we have to go a little bit deeper. We have to start off with things like, you know, this is a great circle. You know, this is a vertical circle. Here's a pole. Here's how it spins. You know, that kind of basic material. Because, you know, you, you are impressed by your first teachers. You always will go back to them as your reference point because this is how the imprint happened. So we're looking at it from that perspective. And we figure that if I just did it and imposed it, it won't have that much strength. I just become one of those characters. Whereas we're in a different time now. It has to be a collective. It has to be a group that moves the thing, which means that not all my ideas are going to be see the light of day. Mm. Other people's ideas probably will. And I only see the symmetrical thing as a transition. Mm. I see it as a way of gathering modern information and creating it in a modern form. But I also see it as a, a skin that's going to fall away, you know, and a new astrology will come out of that. One of the things I'm very clear about is that the modern or new astrology isn't going to look anything like what we've been doing. Period. I mean, there's no way we, if we knew what it would look like, we would do it, but we don't. And it's going to be as radically different as um, Einstein's equations were to Newton's equations. It's like that much of a, of a change. It, it won't look the same. I mean, if we looked at, it, at, at a hermetic guy doing lead to gold experiments and stuff and poisoning people all over the place, right? Well, we would first of all be shocked at the lifestyle. But when you look at a modern laboratory, it just is not the same. You know, it's not the same as some guy in a, with a cauldron and a few metals and stuff like that playing with a fire. We're in a period where if we do the transition correctly, and that means all of us, right, what will be left behind, we won't recognize as we approach our mortality, so to speak. If we do it right, we shouldn't recognize it. There'll always be historians. There'll always be guys that want to recreate, you know, what Dorotheus did and stuff like that, or or Ptolemy. And I hate the scientists when they always do that. They always go to Ptolemy first, who was the hack. He was the worst of the writers. <laughs> he had the least to say, you know. And they all go to Ptolemy first. In closing, what excites you moving forward, given everything that we've been talking about, looking at during the, the course of this episode and what you've described, what you're seeing moving forward, a type of hope or uh, something that you... I believe in humans. Anything that humans set their mind to do, they will do. As far as the climate change that's going on and everything else, maybe that Hades Kronos business is the effect of the climate change that we can't do shit about. But I do believe that if the humans get their brains together, we will be off fossil fuels in 10 years. We decide we're going to go to Mars. We'll go to Mars. You know, I don't think we're going to get too much further than places like Mars or maybe Jupiter because we don't fare too well out in space, no matter how well we're shielded and stuff psychologically and physically. It just mm -hmm. maybe we could send our DNA out. Maybe that's how, you know, how it got to Earth in the first place. We'll make a cyst or a seed out of it send it off to Alpha Centauri or something. But I do see us populating the inner solar system for the most part. 
I do see us doing amazing things, you know, we would consider amazing now. The thing with food, I think we're going to solve pretty easily as well. If nature didn't have some destiny for humans in general, nature would never have given us the tools it's given us. We're a damn experiment. And we're a fast experiment. We're only 30, what, 70,000 years old that we've been socially organized the way we are. Nature would not have done that if nature wasn't shit scared about something. You know, nature does not want to have an ending. It does not want to have to deal with an extinction. It has already had five known extinction events and probably a lot more than that, where life has been all virtually extinguished from this planet. So as a race, I believe we have a larger service to do, and it has to do with either shooting a rock out of the sky or playing with our DNA to evolve us into a different being altogether. As far as food is concerned, this was the big mistake of Buddha. Buddha basically was bummed out that, you know, in order to live, we have to destroy other consciousness. And it even goes to the fact of a vegetarian. You don't think a plant wants to be eaten. No life wants to be destroyed, you know, in the service of other lives. And this is what bummed Buddha out. He felt that consciousness was destructive because it had to feed on other consciousnesses. But it's consciousness itself that's the magic. It's consciousness itself that is the manifestation of this universe. We're the eyes and ears of God, literally, you know, in, in all of its myriad forms. And every little living creature, every little... Even the rocks have a consciousness of their own. So I believe the Buddha was a little mistaken. Once we solve this business with food, and it's got to be a situation where we're going to have to create a life form, a life form who's symbiotic with us. In other words, everything that's excreted by that life form is mana to us, food, whereas our excretions will be food for that life form, a perfect symbosis. And the idea that we will no longer have a vested interest in eating everything else on the planet, mm. well, then at that point, we overcome Buddha's objections. And life can go on ad infinitum and become celebrated. I believe that the dinosaurs were a social experiment, right? They introduced the idea of sociability, of interaction between various species and various animals. They nested. They raised their young. In the Cambrian period, it was like, hey, we got another little thing out there. Maybe we can eat it. There was no social structures in the Cambrian period, but we get to the dinosauric period and we get social structures are introduced all over the place. Now, I think that nature would have been perfectly happy stopping right there, but it couldn't foresee a rock hitting us from outer space, couldn't foresee other issues with extinction events and DNA getting lost. So something big is going to happen. It's not going to be in our lifetimes, I don't think, but it's going to be very large. And I think that nature has been spending 70,000 years and all of its resources and gambling all of its resources on us. And the way I see us is I see us as children. If you leave the children alone in the house as teenagers and you go away for a couple of weeks, you're not going to see much of a house when you come back home. I think we're waking up in our own effluent and waking up in our own shit and realizing now that, oh, what happened last night? <laughs> what did we do? Oh, we got to fix this place. But we can fix it. 
we can take that hammer and nails and we can put together a wonderful environment, no matter how much the sun starts putting out more juice or how little it does, we'll adapt. And I have great faith in the humans on that level. And I, and I really do believe that we have a different destiny than all the other animals in that sense. And it's not one that we should be happy about. It's a responsibility in the long run. We are the bulls in the China closet and we broke a lot of stuff. We own it all. And we're going to have to spend the rest of eternity paying for that. But that's my hope for humanity. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> wow. This has been a lot of fun and fascinating and educational all at once. So, yeah, yeah. thank you so much for sharing uh, with us and being here today. If you guys are ever up on Cape Cod, we're easy to find. I am. Where are you guys located? Austin, Texas. You're in Texas land. All right. You have to deal with energy issues all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Those will get a little bit better moving forward. But Austin is one of the more enlightened places where you guys are. So it's you're in a desert and you're an oasis. <laughs> That's a good thing. So if you do want to see the real ocean, not the one down at Galveston, the sub-ocean, right? Come up to the Cape. Astrolabe is a, a fa- an astrological factory. We don't have a big cafeteria or things to show and stuff like that. But we'll give you a good time. Okay. All right. Thank you. Wonderful. All right. Thank All you right. so much. Thanks for your time, Gary. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Meg Ruby and Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.